Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on The New Aleph, Aramis and Paul's group were drawn into a deadly fight with mercenaries that were also trying to use the Narthex to escape Pan. And now, Chapter 18, Part 2 of The New Aleph. Hermes had lost half a pant leg and a boot, fighting with the woman Fire Pravy, and the woman was avoiding turning herself fully into fire, mostly just her arms and head, leaving her torso and legs more vulnerable to blunt force attacks, which is what Aramis kept trying to inflict. She sent jets of water at her, making the tips vaporize just before hitting, both to try and blind the woman and to turn the rest of the jet into ice. The woman blocked most of these. Aramis landed a few hits on her chest and gut, but the woman landed a few blasts of fire on Aramis's head and pants. The hits didn't injure Aramis, but every time she had to use the surrounding water to repair herself, her reserve of Kesho dropped. That, combined with her mounting physical fatigue, was getting her closer and closer to total exhaustion. Her aim getting a little sloppy, Aramis sent another jet of water flashing into ice right through the head of the woman. But it did seem to make her angrier. She exploded, fire flashing out everywhere and scorching Aramis's wetsuit and setting her belt on fire. Aramis ducked down under the water. The woman was all fire now, and her arms had transformed into huge, fiery wings. She swooped down right over Aramis and then climbed up, flying into the sky. Dang, Aramis said, watching her get higher, hoping for a second that she'd try to escape and just leave her alone. She was up in the air for a little while, gliding lazily, letting Aramis catch her breath, but that was probably because the woman wanted to catch her breath as well. Aramis squinted to scan around the battlefield for a moment while she sat there, lightheaded and tired. Paul was boxing with a stone previed twice his size, mostly trying to not get hit. Vicky's baby-faced secretary and Milton were working together, swinging at something right above them that Aramis couldn't see. Probably the wind previed. Aramis found Vicky stumbling back before the medium-built vassal that had no shirt on. She could tell that Vicky was saying something before yelling out as the man slashed across her arm with something small in his hand. Too short to be a dagger. Maybe a knife, but it didn't look like a knife. But then Vicky fell to her knees, clenching her scratched arm and screaming in pain. Aramis stood up and was about to run over to her, but out of the corner of her eye she saw that the winged, fiery woman was now dive-bombing toward her. Aramis looked up, then at Vicky, then noticed something a few meters away from her, under the water. Aramis charged toward it, having to duck under the water to dodge a flaming wing swinging out at her. She kept under the water, swimming toward her target, then grabbed it. It was an element lock pistol, dropped by someone earlier. She pulled back the charging switch and felt what might be the last bit of Kesho she had left surge into the four tanks of the four-barreled pistol. Aramis then stood up out of the water, seeing the winged woman about to ram into her, a terrifying angel of flame with hateful eyes locked onto her. Aramis aimed. The woman's eyes widened as she realized what Aramis was holding, and she folded up her wings in front of her to shield herself. Aramis pulled the trigger, and the air cracked twice. 
once from the gun firing, the other from the mix of water and pure Kesho striking the woman. That fire-winged figure tumbled backward in the air under the blow, the wings torn apart and trailing steam. She fell in a heap out in the maze, smoke rising from the bushes as she set them on fire. Aramis turned back toward Vicky, who was on her hands and knees and shaking while the shirtless vassal stood over her, watching her struggle with pain. Brett had stopped swinging at the air and was charging toward that vassal. Brett, wait, Paul yelled, but then his opponent landed a solid punch right against his chest. Pain shot inward and around his torso, breathing hurt as he stumbled back from the now grinning ogre. Paul focused on the fact that he could still breathe. It only hurt a little, and mostly only when he inhaled. The stone charged and Paul felt a rock by his feet as he stepped to the side. Tired of being weaponless, Paul feigned collapsing so he could grab the rock. The stone cravey was about to punch straight down at Paul's head when Paul stood up with a yell and swung the rock across the face of the stone cravey. The rock shattered into little rocks. The stone cravey's eyes went out of focus and a little blood dribbled down his gray lip. Paul wasted no time and threw his fist hard into his temple. The huge man fell like a sack, splashing into the water. His face was underwater and he didn't move. Paul turned to see what Brett was doing and saw him stumbling back from the shirtless guy. He ran over toward him, shoving past Milton, who was with Aubrey now, fighting the invisible guy. Milton looked like he was blowing fire out of his mouth in random sweeping circles, but Paul didn't stay long enough to bother figuring out what they were doing. And right after he passed them, Brett came flailing through the air at Paul, who moved so he could catch him. Landing in Paul's arms, he looked up at him with bulging eyes, his mouth foaming. He was still clutching his back. What did he do to you? Paul asked in a whisper. Hollow poison. On his blades. Was all he could get out between wheezing. He was shivering and rashes were forming on his skin. Somewhere in the back of Paul's mind, he thought about how he was in the middle of a battlefield and shouldn't be standing still, but someone was dying in his arms. Brett's breathing was getting worse. His skin, now red and rough, began to look translucent and cold as he fought harder and harder to breathe. Then he stopped. He stopped moving, and Paul realized that he was the one shaking now. Brett's body relaxed and his bat fell from his hand with a splash. Paul looked up and saw the shirtless, tattooed man standing several paces from him, facing Milton. Hermes stumbled up alongside Vicky, who was doubled over and staring at the shirtless vassal with bloodshot eyes. Aramis mumbled to herself as she checked Vicky, trying to see if she was bleeding out anywhere. Why is he not wearing a shirt? Hasn't today been weird enough already? Vicky nodded. He killed Brett. He has special poison on his kunai blades. Aramis frowned and squinted at the guy, but still couldn't get a good enough look at what was in his hands. He was currently facing Milton, whose arms and head had fire lapping off of them. I don't know what a kunai is. Will you be okay? Milton and the vassal's fight was suddenly obscured as Milton blasted him with fire, again filling the center of the clearing with steam, plus a heavy dose of black smoke. 
Get them out of here. You have to kill him. Vicky fell into a coughing fit and pushed Aramis to her feet. The poison will kill anyone who isn't an Aleph or a water Pravid. The smoke and steam were blown back suddenly from the two fighters and someone yelled, No! The vassal had lunged forward to grab Milton by the neck. Milton struggled a moment, then went limp, and the vassal threw him back. Milton tumbled in the water and did not get back up. His head bobbed oddly in the river current. Paul and Aubrey ran at the vassal. Damn it. Aramis also ran at the vassal. She was tired, not exhausted. She was also out of Kesho. This tattoo guy didn't know that, though. Before she could get to him, the Lady Fire Pravid Aramis had knocked back earlier flew down and landed to block Aramis's path, steam shooting up from around her ankles until she shed the fire around her body, except for on her wing-like arms. Those in the rest of her body were now covered in feathers, which apparently was her solution to burning off all her clothes. Over the fire's shoulder, Aramis could see Aubrey trading blows with the vassal, who was holding those funny leaf-shaped daggers in between the fingers of his fists, so that it was like he had claws. Fortunately, Aubrey was a stone pravy, and the blades just grazed off of her skin. And Aramis took a fiery wing-fist punch to the jaw because she wasn't paying attention. She stumbled back and looked up at her opponent. She looked just as tired as Aramis felt. Aramis charged forward and shoved the fire Pravid back into the water, who cursed as she was swallowed up in a cloud of steam. Aramis ran past just in time to see Aubrey kick the vassal's hand hard, sending his little dagger things flying at Aramis. She ducked under them and kept charging, toward trouble, but still not getting there soon enough to stop the vassal from kicking Aubrey hard in the face. Aubrey stumbled back and Paul picked her up and pulled her back. The vassal followed them a few steps, then noticed Aramis charging at him. She saw him pull out another handful of the little daggers so that both of his hands had the set of three each, which reminded her to turn herself into water. Doing so with her Kesho at zero made her almost pass out as she went lightheaded, but she still charged forward, all water except for her fists, which she turned into ice. She came in with a punch that he dodged easily. They started trading blows, but Aramis was tired and he wasn't. She felt ridiculous or stupid. She was trying to box with a man who had killed at least two people. She hadn't been in regular training for two years. The only reason he wasn't killing her with each slash was because he couldn't actually hit her. He could make her more tired though. Eventually, she'd pass out and turn back into skin and bones, and then he'd stomp her head in. Hey guys, remember when I had those friend project plugs in the middle? Well, I finally have another one. So this one is for a podcast you should all definitely check out. It's called The Lounge. If you're into tabletop roleplay games, The Lounge by Misdirected Mark Productions has my buddy Doc Palindrome sit in with the best and brightest the game industry has to offer. It's a bi-weekly show and it's just good stuff. Doc's enthusiasm will definitely pull you in as he has fantastic conversations with all these amazing game designers. 
Check out The Lounge on misdirectedmark.com or search for Doc Palindrome wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Paul, heaving, ran with Aubrey in his arms toward the exit of the maze. But out of the corner of his eye, he saw the stone guy he had been fighting earlier getting back up and reaching down to pick up Brett's bat. Paul stopped and turned to Aubrey, who had blood all over her face. You okay if I sit you down here so I can go kick that guy's ass? Aubrey shrugged. Only if you kill him this time. Paul set her down and sprinted at the guy. Just before he got there, the guy turned around and swung the bat right at Paul's head. Paul jumped forward and dove into the guy's waist. The two of them tumbled in the water, Paul wrestling the bat from his hand and punching him hard in the head. He stood there, crunched over him, catching his breath, remembering that Aubrey had said to kill him. He remembered his disagreement with Aramis about executing murderers. Paul picked the guy up and threw him as hard as he could, rolling him almost into the maze. Paul groaned as he picked up the bat and looked over at Aramis and the shirtless guy trading punches not a few paces from him. The guy looked like he was toying with Aramis, who looked like she was about to collapse from exhaustion. Shirtless guy faked a punch and then threw one of his little daggers. Aramis stumbled as she got out of the way and he grabbed her hand and swung her high in the air and slammed her down hard. She got up slowly, her body turning opaque, back into the green-blue skin and her hair turning back into hair. Ignoring her, the shirtless guy casually walked over to pick his daggers back up. Behind him, Aramis pulled something out of a cargo pocket. His chest puffed out. He turned back to face Aramis and met her as she was in mid-swing. She swung the butt of a pistol right into his head. He hunched over, holding his head, and Aramis kicked him hard and onto his back. Paul was about to relax, but then noticed smoke. The hedge maze behind Aramis was now flaring up. Then a path through it was being completely consumed in a tall blaze of orange. A wide breach opened, a burning man running through it, holding one of the vassal's little daggers and charging toward Aramis. The burning path behind him was rapidly repairing itself, the fire going out and the green branches regrowing to fill the gaps, all of it happening nearly as fast as the fire guy was burning forward through it. Look out! Paul ran. Aramis heard him, but frowned and didn't turn around, Paul ran past her and reared back to swing Brett's bat at the fire guy. But the guy threw the dagger at him before he got there, the blade lodging in his chest as he swung around. Crack! The bat hit the fire guy right where the back of his jaw met his neck. Paul was worried that the bat would go right through the fire guy, but no. It hit solid and his head folded over and the rest of him followed down heavily into the water and turned into a naked, orange-skinned man. Paul looked down at the water, seeing the body through the rippling waves of the river. There wasn't any blood. Then he felt his whole chest itching and throbbing horribly. Then his lungs felt like they were clogged up, and Paul fell to his knees and dropped Brett's bat. He heard someone running toward him and knew it was Aramis. Aramis was shaking as she knelt beside Paul. 
Roughness on his skin was inching up his neck toward his face, and he was having trouble breathing. He's a, he's a stone without the protective skin, Aramis said to no one in particular. Aramis looked up as sloshing footsteps approached her. It was Vicky, and she had the same roughness in patches across her skin and was staring down at Paul. Aramis looked back down at him. I guess that means you're right. We're not bonded. Paul's voice was weak and forced. Aramis nodded and grabbed his hand. We need to do it right now. He frowned, but his hand held tight to hers. She lowered her eyes. I pledge to never know bond with you. He sucked in a deep breath before repeating, I, Paul Stevens, pledge to never know bond with you. She leaned down close to him, suddenly feeling extremely cold. She was shivering terribly as the icy water flowed around her. Say your conditions. He frowned, apparently taking a moment to think. Hurry, kid. Vicky was standing over Aramis's shoulder now. You won't be able to speak or breathe if you wait too long. He let out a weak, stifled cough, then furrowed his brow as he drew in a breath. I'm going to waste two conditions to get the ability to smell murderers. Like a, like a wolf smells things. Aramis opened her mouth, slightly confused, but didn't have a chance to ask for clarification on this unusual request. Paul's face filled with more lines as he forced his lungs to fill with air again. My last condition is that you don't put your life on the line for the sake of murderers. A stab of pain shot through Aramis as she heard that. She was offended by it, but didn't have time to figure out exactly why, or to debate with Paul about whether or not this was reasonable. She didn't know how much time he had left. His face was over halfway covered with the rash now, and his eyes were starting to dart around as if unable to focus on anything around him. She said quickly, I accept your conditions. Aramis and Paul's hands became warm and glowed for a moment. Aramis let out a sigh of relief and relaxed her grip on Paul's hand. She hadn't realized how tightly she was holding. Vicky folded her arms and snorted. Huh, never heard of that one before. Aramis watched the rise and fall of Paul's chest to see if it would get any easier. For a moment, nothing changed. Paul still had to fight for each breath. But slowly, gradually, he could breathe more easily. The rash did not fade away, but the tension on his face did. After what felt like an hour, he finally was able to sit up in the water. Well, that door should be no problem now. I don't think anything will be a problem for you now, Vicky said. So you're going to smell murderers? Paul shrugged. I don't know. I was arguing with Aramis about how you can tell if someone is an offender or not. But I didn't know if Cephas would be able to figure that out. But smelling them. Aramis was wondering about all that too. But she was still too distracted watching Paul's body recovering from the poison. Now she was bonded to Paul. And she could also feel a hint of the pain fading from his body, even within herself. She thought she could feel a sense of satisfaction in him, that he would now be able to tell if someone was a murderer or not. Or it 
could just be that she was reading it in the expression on his face. It was confusing. Even with the rashes, he now looked strong and convicted and clear-minded. For a long moment, she seriously considered going with him. Or maybe she could convince him to stay here in Pan. Something about feeling or seeing the clarity of his thinking made it seem simple. She held a breath, and a wave of euphoria washed over her as a thought arrived. She could make him stay. She could command him to remain here, and the bond would give him an urgent yearning to obey. He wouldn't have to obey her, but if there was any part of him that wanted at all to be with Aramis, he probably wouldn't refuse. She could even ask indirectly, pretending she didn't know what she was doing, and the emotions that Cephas would overcome Paul with might seem to him like a sudden change of heart. He probably wouldn't even know she was manipulating him. Everything she wanted, right within range of grasping. And all she had to do was violate her best friend. She sat back in the water, finally letting herself move away from him a little. She shivered badly in the cold water as part of her mind began working hard, trying to invent excuses for why it wasn't actually wrong to betray Paul this way. They looked up at the sound of Aubrey coming over. She was carrying one of the vassal's mini daggers in her hand, both it and her hand dripping with blood. She tossed it into the water and sighed. Aramis frowned at her, but Aubrey just shrugged. What, you wanted to tie him up? You wouldn't have even needed to bond that way if you'd killed that fire before counting him as out of the fight. Vicky still looked confused. What are the murderers gonna smell like? Paul stood up and looked at the now calm battlefield. The current of the river was rapidly pushing wide blotches of red out of the clearing, lines of the red trailing from the lumps rustling in the shallow current like the scattered tufts of grass, the still bodies of those Aubrey had just killed. Aramis trudged past him, leading their group of refugees through the water toward the door. Her eyes were on the path ahead of her, but those behind her were looking around at the bodies and blood with fear increasing on their faces. Paul fell in beside Aramis. I need to know for real this time. It took a moment for Aramis's eyes to lift up from the water to Paul's face. What? I need, I need to know why you believe. With all these, seeing all these powers and, and murders, you, you still believe. And even... Even now, when we're supposed to be the good guys, and we just killed all these people, how do you keep believing in that? Aramis was staring at Paul as he spoke. She was silent until they were near the rock wall. When evidence gets muddled, it turns into an issue of competing philosophies. Paul frowned. What does that mean? Aramis gestured at the group. Everyone picks what they want to believe. 
the remnants make claims about how the world works and how the name acts. But people pick out evidence that suits the way they want to see the world and how they want to behave in the world. You can manipulate people and think you're doing what's best for them, or just blatantly use people and then make up whatever excuse works for that situation. Paul looked around. This wasn't like their walk along the train tracks. People weren't trying to hide the fact that they were listening. Some were openly staring at Aramis, but some looked like they were in shock. Paul was actually a little taken back. They hadn't seen the fight directly, so he hadn't expected them to be that impacted by it. But they had heard all of it, and they could now see the bodies. Aramis seemed oblivious to those watching her. When you get to pick and choose and interpret evidence however you want, you sometimes have to instead fight over who has the best philosophy. And my philosophy says that this world requires justice and grace. People who were murdered to have their soul space stolen deserve justice. But it's such a horrible crime that there is no recompense. You mentioned that, that they can't give the life back. Aramis nodded. With no recompense, there's no way to repay. So forgiveness is the only option for them. The grace. But it has to be asked for. The clearing went silent and Aramis caught her breath. She folded her arms, her forehead full of wrinkles. The pain covering her face made Paul wonder if she was trying to convince herself of the things she was saying. When she continued, her voice was quiet. There's something about the balance of justice and grace that Seven offers that both disturbs and comforts my soul in a way that keeps my confidence from collapsing. Vicky spoke up. But picking a philosophy because you like it best is the same as cherry-picking evidence. I've seen people write down instructions on DC paper and then the world changes to match what they wrote. Whichever philosophy I like best, it doesn't matter because humans have the power of gods. Maybe Seven was a god. Maybe he created humans. But he doesn't seem to be a god here. I don't see much justice and grace in Maybar. Maybe when humans made it, they forgot to include those things. Aramis looked at her and shrugged. The name creates, man copies. And doesn't always copy very well. Holy shit, that was ridiculous. Akahiro nodded. He and Nathan had been hiding in the trees, just over a half a kilometer away from the narthex, and having just caught the tail end of the fight. Both of them had a set of the special binoculars this time. Akahiro gestured at the door as the victorious gang was walking through, supported by the guy who looked like he'd almost died a few minutes ago. What are they going to do when they get in there? Nathan shrugged. I don't know. But I'll bet you that at least one of them will be coming back out. Akihiro frowned. How do you know? Nathan smiled and pointed over at a hill above the maze. Because they left their giant robotic kitty cat waiting behind.
Thanks for listening. Chapter 19 will post June 4th. If you want to show your love for the podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you have any questions, you can find me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. Have a great couple of weeks, everybody. 